0: This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock?
1: Tech story is front and center. What
0: will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. It feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in.
2: This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and
0: Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. It's just past 5 p.m. over in London, just about 12 p.m here in the U.S. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Christina Kino uh, joins me over in the U.K. Guy Johnson is off today. Christine, the worst is yet to come. If you felt bad before the IMF recent release, you probably felt worse after reading that sentence, the worst is yet
3: to come. Wow, what a nice uh, gloomy way to start the fourth quarter, Alex. I feel like every time you and I get together, it's just a combination of all doom and gloom. Is it us? Do we no, bring it? No, upon I mean ourselves? Guy and
0: I have a lot of doom and gloom too. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh that was the IMF report. We will get to that uh, throughout the next hour. We're also going to deal with the BOE and more extra financial instability as it uh, widens out. It's bond buying program to include Linkers now for the first time ever to help stabilize pay- funds. Uh, European cl- uh, stocks closed a little heavy here. The FTSE 100 off by one full percentage point. You also have the CAC off by one-tenth. You got the European stocks off by half a percentage point. Bond market really whippy as well. You are seeing some co- money coming into the bond market. Yields moving a bit lower here in the U.S. It's been whippy all over the place as well. Uh, we'll get to that in just a moment. Um, all right. There's a lot to get through. Oh, and Credit Suisse needs like $8 billion. Oh, there's that. We'll get to that as well. Here's Charlie Pellet though, with some other hopefully non-depressing headlines.
4: I wish I could guarantee that. Yeah, fair it's enough. all in the eye of the beholder. Got to begin with that IMF story. You guys are going to be talking more about that coming up. International Monetary Fund warning of a worsening outlook for the global economy, highlighting that efforts to manage the hottest inflation in decades may add to the damage from the war in Ukraine and China's slowdown. The IMF cut its forecast for global growth next year to 2.7% from 2.9% seen in July and 3. 8% in January, adding that it sees a 25% probability that growth will slow to less than 2%. European carmakers could see output drop by more than 1 million vehicles per quarter starting late this year and continuing through 2023. As soaring energy costs weigh on the supply chain, S&P Global Mobility says part shortages and supply bottlenecks are likely to weigh most heavily on automakers from November through spring of 2023, particularly if energy is cut during the colder winter months. And Allianz Chief Economic Advisor Mohamed el Arian says aggressive monetary tightening by the Federal Reserve will not only damage the U.S. economy, but will have an impact on the rest of the world. Now, he was interviewed on Bloomberg Television and Radio this morning. He said, quote, the economy is starting to go through the windshield. The financial system is starting to go through the windshield. el Arian, by the way, is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. He is also the president of Queens College Cambridge. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York.
0: Wow, thanks. That really didn't do it for me, Charlie. That optimistic news there. Through a windshield?
4: Hey, just the facts. And he's not (laughs) the only guy to have said that on Bloomberg television this morning.
0: It's true. Uh, Very articulate, uh, Mohamed Alarian. So uh, let's talk about the UK and the political situation and the BOE uh, situation there. So in the middle of all of this, where you have the IMF talking about the worst is yet to come, highlighting financial instability risks, among many other things. Uh, The BOE ramping up its own bond-buying program to help stabilize pension funds. And at the same time, Kwasi Kwarteng was speaking with the House of Commons earlier today. He is also headed to DC for those IMF talks. A lot of heat on what he can deliver there. Here's part of what he had to say today to the House of Commons.
4: The IMF said today that actually the the plan, the mini budget has increased uh, the the forecast for growth. That's exactly, that's exactly, precisely the opposite of what the Honourable Lady has said and it's very clear where we stand on this we've got pro-growth pro-enterprise pro-business conservatives on one side and the anti-growth coalition on the other side who want to tax more and want to uh, commit us to low growth.
0: That was Quasi quartang talking uh, to the House of Commons. I don't know, Christine, if that's the vibe he's going to want to be going in with to these IMF talks. It feels a little (laughs) bit too congratulatory. That's a word.
3: Yeah, and also not very conciliatory, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And especially because the backdrop of his trip to D.C., of course, for the first time uh, going to the IMF meetings, of course, the U.K. already being singled out by the institution saying that it is displaying the wrong way to fight the inflation crisis. Crisis. And I think uh, the IMF specifically referred to um, the idea of fiscal policy going against monetary policy, which is exactly what we're seeing in the UK at the moment, and which is why investors have really voted with their feet out of UK assets yeah. over the last couple of weeks.
0: No kidding. Uh, let's kick it around. Bloomberg's Jamie Wilcock uh, joins us now. Um, also, uh, Bloomberg's Jamie Rush will join us on the eco-impact. All right, guys. Um, James, ooh, James and Jamie, this is going to be fun for us. Ooh, uh, yes. James... Let's start with you. Um, what kind of quasi quartet do you think we're going to get in D.C.?
2: I, I hesitate to say, Alex. I mean, like Christine says, I wonder if he'll use those exact lines. We look at sort of what the IMF said of like a 0.3 percent growth rate, even if that is up. quasi Quartet has in the past said he wants the U.K. to be at 2.5 percent annual trend growth. So he's you know implying that they're going to be predicting things up by 2.2 percent if that kind of optimism and Kwa is a very optimistic chancellor comes out of the IMF, I wonder how they will uh, react. I mean, he has said he's relentlessly focused on growing the economy, but in some ways his hands are tied now. He has to get a lot of supply-side policy through a very fractious government. That clip you played with him in Parliament, what was interesting, it was former cabinet ministers who were asking him some of the toughest questions about how he will be funding small businesses and the premiums he'd on to mortgages. So I guess, a shaken Chancellor heads for DC and the question now is like where can he find this growth that he's so relentlessly focused on
3: well, that is a big question, right, James? I mean, you were on the ground at the Tory conference uh, last week. And, you know, as you mentioned, he is a shaken chancellor heading into the IMF meeting. Do you think that he's picked up uh, some of the reality that was thrust upon him at that conference? And uh, is that something that's kind of tempering his optimism in, in making him realize that there is going to be a lot of work if the this is where the UK wants to go in terms of its growth plans? I think what they've
2: Christine, is the UK is short of capital. Trust is government is short of capital. And that can be both political capital and also foreign capital, right, in terms of the markets. And that political capital is very thick. Uh, they have, a like, trust barely won the support of MPs to become, like, the candidatory government. Rishi Sunak, the other challenger, has more people in Parliament backing her. So that after that conference, there are already big u-turns The big sort of fighting ground in Parliament is going to be around benefits, this idea that like, they want working people and people who are sort of on universal credit, the welfare system, to have benefits uprated with inflation. Now, that is going to be yet another strain on government budgets at the very time where they're trying to save most money. So Christine announced we're in this weird position where the government is trying to both spend more money whilst finding savings in other areas at the same time. It's not going to be able to hold
0: this problem. No. It's, it's, not, it's not pretty. It already hasn't been pretty. Um, and to the point of it not being pretty, um, as I mentioned, the BOE is going to allocate up to £5 billion uh, pounds, uh, to conventional gilts and £5 billion to index-linked gilts at each remaining buyback now to stabilize uh, pension funds. By the way, this is supposed to end on Friday. Jamie, can it really end on Friday?
5: I, mean, I think it's going to be extremely difficult for them to do to, to bring that programme to an end on Friday. I mean, they, at the very least, I think they're going to have to extend it to the end of the month when the government will finally set out its its fiscal plan. So, I, that's my guess. My guess is they'll have to run on for longer. I mean, the alternative is a crisis.
0: Yeah, a crisis. What What does that look like?
5: <laughs> well, I, I, what we're seeing is crisis unfolding on various dimensions in the UK. So you have the you obviously you have the gilt's crisis uh, and the and the pension funds that are, are, are dependent on BoE lifelines just to stay afloat. Um, you've also got a mortgage market which is basically going to seize up over November. No one's going to be taking a mortgage out. People aren't going to be moving house. And these are realities that the Conservative Party and the government is going are going to have to confront. Um, and it's not going to be pretty for them. So I think. Uh, It's it's very welcome news. They moved the budget forward a month. I mean, really couldn't have waited until the end of November. Um, And they need to make some decisions and some credible policy choices now. Otherwise, this is going to get really nasty.
3: So Jamie, paint the full picture for us here and give give our listeners some context here. I mean, the pensions industry, the bond market particularly the index linked bond market in the UK, these are not meant to be very volatile markets. In fact, they've been so boring for the last decade or so and, and that's part of the reason why it's been such a shock to see all this volatility coming through now. I mean, what does it say that we're seeing such a scene now when over the past decade or so, there's been no issue at all, or very little issue.
2: Mm. Well, I mean, we, we know that
5: this problem is born out of hedging strategies, so it's, it's actually nothing to do with the under, underlying solvency of the funds, really. It's just to do with whether they can post enough collateral to, to carry out those hedging strategies. Um, so, this is where, the, where things have fallen over. You know, we've been sat around watching interest rates go up, wondering what will break, and here we are, this, this is what's broken. Um, yeah, the, the, the root cause, though, is very, very high interest, rate, expected interest rates, and that's not going to go away unless there is a, a U-turn on the government's policies, or they are somehow able to spell out
1: mm-hmm.
0: some
5: spending cuts which are believable to markets.
0: Um, hey, James, um, one of the, believable to markets. That's a great way of saying it. So, James, one of the analysts over at J.P. Morgan uh, talked about how the fact that all of this, the disruptive delivery of the um, budget plan by quasi Quartang and the lingering uncertainty, we going to leave a permanent scar on the rate market. Thoughts?
2: I think you, you've banned negativity, right, Alex? That's what Charlie Pellet was told. He came over here with marching orders. I so know, like I'm i sorry. think
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: The positive side of this is, this is a government willing to use it. And it's done that in a number of ways. It's dropped like its highest tax and it's this egregious political part, the 45p rate. It has also just today installed like the new sort of replacement at the top of the treasury, sort of um, a person called James Bowler, which has 20 years experience. The press really stressed his experience in the treasury four different times. And that is after this trust has spent all summer bashing Treasury orthodoxy. So for all the language and all the sort of focus on growth, this is a government that behind the scenes is aware it has ground to make up and is turning... The question is one that Jamie has already sort of outlined. When we're in this very difficult moment, the government's defenders will point to Ukraine, they'll point to global interest rates rising, they'll point to the dollar. In that moment, the U.K. has punched a 43 billion pound hole in its balance sheet and it needs to cost it. Um the question that both me and Jamie wanted the answer to is where that money is coming from.
0: Yes, mm. we agree. We agree. Um, uh, Christine, are you OK there?
3: I am. I'm just very shocked at uh, the the extent of the issue here and uh, very curious as to where that money is indeed coming from.
0: Yeah, I just wanted to pause because like we've had some technical issues. So I want to make sure that Christine could actually hear and that we're all on the same page and, you know, we're all in that good place. Um, hey, Jamie, um, what do you think is going to happen when the UK stops playing whack-a-mole with the guilt market? What does it look like? Let's Let's say November 3rd when you get the BOE meeting, presumably whatever program they have right now is done. What does that look like?
5: Um, I, I mean, I would, it, it, as I said, it kind of totally depends on what people expect interest rates to do. Um, that, that is the root cause of the problem. It's very high interest rates, raising the classical requirement for pension funds, and that is the root of the problem. So it depends totally on what whether the government is able to deliver something credible. And if they aren't, then the bank thing is going to have to continue, or they're going to have to, or the treasury is going to have to think about some sort of some sort of um, some other approach to tackling the tackling the problem. Um, so I think it's, it's not, if unless the policy changes, this problem isn't going to go away.
3: So to that point then, Jamie, how far do you think the BOE will have to go to reassure markets here? I mean, are we talking about fundamental changes to the trajectory of the policy that they have so far laid out, which is taking steps toward tightening?
5: Mm. Well, I think so. the Bank of England, previously we thought they'd probably do another 50 basis point hike in mm-hmm. at the November meeting. Um, they clearly now have to do a lot more if they want to keep the pound trading where it is. If they don't validate market expectations for a bigger hike, then you're going to see the pound fall. That's going to raise import costs and it's going to worsen the inflation problem. So they're caught between this 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 inflation problem with the what they have to do to get to, to keep the exchange rate where it just where it is, um, and the economic damage it's going to be wrought. Uh, as they lift interest rates. So it's a, very, it's, a very un, it's a very unfortunate position to be in for any central bank. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're probably going to do 100 basis points in November, but it will depend on, on what the government decides.
0: If things go belly up until then, is there anything else that the BOE can do to help stabilize pension funds? Um,
5: I, I, I think one possibility is that they could basically continue the current scheme but try and sterilize it. So that is trying new to the impact it has on the money supply, hmm. um, because that's one of the criticisms of, of this policy is that at the moment, in its current format, it's basically just QE. So I think if they could do something to try and uh, separate this program from perceptions of QE and like the the, the perception in markets that the treasury is now in, in the in the in the driving seat um, pushing much policy around, I think that would be one way that they might be able to to basically keep this program running with an open-ended commitment, um, but without have, without losing control of the military policy stance.
0: Yikes. Okay, well, we'll definitely look for that. I mean, I feel like these things are moving so fast now, you can't rule it out for sure. Um, Jamie Rush, appreciate the economic take. James Wilcock, thank you very much for the political take. Kwasi Kwarteng really in the hot seat uh, when he heads to D.C. I'm so interested to see his tone when he talks to the IMF. All right, coming up, Credit Suisse also in the spotlight, facing a U.S. tax probe and Senate inquiry over accounts, plus needs a lot of capital. We'll discuss. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, listening to The Cable on Bloomberg D.A.B. Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson's off today. Christina Kino joins me over in the U.K. So Credit Suisse was already having a tough day, week, month, year, you name it. Um, there was a note out from, uh, what was it, Goldman Sachs? No, J.P. Morris, uh, Jeffries. It is Je-
3: Goldman
0: Sachs. It was, it was Goldman Sachs. There's a lot of analysts notes a about lot. capital raises. Um, it was Goldman Sachs note saying that you could have as much as $8 billion, uh, dollar gap for Credit Suisse a funding gap as little as four billion as high as eight those are hefty numbers plus we get a headline here that Credit Suisse is facing a U.S, US tax probe and Senate inquiry over accounts would we talk to JP JP Barnett uh, joins us now on Credit Suisse JP first off the headline that just crossed about this tax probe and Senate inquiry wh- what is that?
1: Uh, well, I mean, that's like a, a year-old issue, actually, uh, where Credit Suisse already paid a, a huge fine for, and it now seems to um, to resurface again. I mean, it's the, the most horrible timing that you can have. The bank is in uh, in, in trouble already. It's struggling to get its turnaround going. Um, there are questions about its solvency and uh, about its capital buffers and everything. And if you now have now uh, another litigation issue looming, and we know that U.S. authorities are not going easy on you on, on those types of, of issues, Um, then it's going to be even harder for Credit Suisse to regain this investor trust.
3: Well, yeah. Speaking of investor trust, JP, I'm just looking at the share price just for this year. 50% decline in that share price, and it seems like this bank has really been through one crisis after another. Green Seal, Ar- Green Seal, uh resignation of their chairman, and then now, uh, or more recently, having a new CEO. I mean, where does this end? I mean, what would it take for the bank to regain at least a little bit of that investor trust that they've lost so much?
1: well that's a very good question and i i would guess it takes a lot but let's start with like the probably easy thing is that uh when they uh announced a new strategy in about two weeks time or even earlier if they if they want to but let's say in two weeks time what is what is planned they they need to come up with a solid plan because all the other plans we have heard before were go were half cooked they were not like forceful they were not like new they were not reinventing the bank and that that was all just like it it was horrible so that's the first step they need to do and then they need to ensure the market that there is no capital issue going down the road so we had this note today from goldman sachs and from jeffries uh something between four and nine billion i mean it's like a it's a broad range um but they need to make sure that this gap is not getting too large and if there is a capital gap, which, gap, which certainly will be, um, then they need to explain in very detail and and very uh, understandable how they want to fund it, either with asset sales or if they need to go to the market and and do a capital raise. Um, then they need to explain like how this is going to work, especially in this market, in this market environment.
0: Yeah, I mean, four to nine billion, like that's a huge, like you know, divergence. <laughs> That's quite the range. Yeah, that's that's a range for you. Um, and I'm wondering yeah. how much detail do you think we get October twenty seventh when we're supposed to get all the all, all the plans and all the details? I mean to me, they feel I feel like they have to come out and be like, Okay, great, we're gonna sell this asset for this much money and are we gonna get that?
1: Well, probably not in that amount of detail that would be that would be preferable. But I guess it's even for Credit Suisse, it's hard to to put a price tag on on some of their assets. Uh, but what they need to do is like explain, okay, this is the new bank going to look like this is when we expect to turn a profit again, uh, we need this and this uh, to do and this will cost us x, and we are going to fund this with that. So that's that 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 kind of a game plan or timetable we want to we want to see and investors want to see and then we can figure out if uh, the math checks out.
3: So, okay, we get to the end of October, the much-awaited plan being laid out, but what if investors still don't think that that's enough? What would be kind of the aftermath worst-case scenario in, in that case?
1: Well, I guess the worst case is uh, it's hard to, to, to pin down, to be honest, uh, because we know that banks, especially in Europe, have a hard time anyway with investors these days. Um, um, and so if they fail to come up with something that is convincing, i wouldn't be surprised if the if the share price gets cut in half uh, again over a, a couple of months or maybe maybe a year um or even worse uh, that credit suisse becomes like a takeover target for for good um, wow. so i but i think management knows that um they're very very aware that the market is like looking razor sharp at what they are doing and going to announce so I would be majorly surprised if they fail again because they have failed two times and they've seen what happened so if they fail again if they're not decisive if they're not bold i mean oh god save them then i mean then then you can't help it
0: oh fair enough that is seriously grim there too um so i just want to get back to the to the probe real quick because you know what really took deutsche bank down back in in 2016 that prolonged their restructuring was a huge what seven billion dollars fine they had to pay to the u.s is this tax probe like anything along those kind of lines like are we gonna be is the bad news going to keep coming in the form of you owe this fine you owe that fine or is this just a bad headline
1: absolutely that's certainly a probability and if you if you if you mention Deutsche Bank the comparison is quite striking we have more or less the same kind of of pathway that the two banks are are taking right now Um Change of CEOs quite frequently a lack of decisive uh, strategy. Uh, one litigation thing after another. Remember, Deutsche Bank was raided just when they were about to to, to turn the tide on on the lender. So. It feels a little bit the same for Credit Suisse here, and and, uh, that's another issue uh, beyond the restructuring that they have to make a clean slate, uh, tell everyone like, okay, we are over and done with all that mess. We are over and done uh, with all the the bad risk management, the litigation stuff, the hiding stuff, um, uh, because if they don't and if if, if this keeps on dragging, then again, we are in this scenario where it wouldn't be surprising if the share price erodes further.
3: Hmm. And so JP you did mention that it The sharks smell blood in the water. Uh, There are a lot of potential (laughs) companies and banks that that might see Credit Suisse increasingly as a target. I believe we've seen interest from PIMCO, Sixth Street, and Centerbridge Partners among some of them. I mean, what is the likely scenario? If if, if one of these companies or a combination of these companies acquires units of of Credit Suisse, is that kind of the way that we're headed? The, the, Mm -hmm. The bank ultimately getting parceled off
1: uh, I guess that's the most likely scenario. I mean, there's always the topic of a, um, of a full merger possibility, but it's very hard to see here in Europe, given the regulation, given it's a Swiss bank, different currency, different regulation. Um, so the only real contender here would be UBS, probably. And I, I guess they don't want to touch it at this moment. So the most likely scenario is like that they look at, at stuff, like Deutsche Bank did, um, that isn't core, and try to sell this at mm-hmm. a good price.
0: Well, that was some good news there, too. We're going to continue the good news in just a moment. JP, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. JP Barnett uh, joining us. Continuing that good news, we're going to talk more about the IMF and the whole the worst is yet to come situation as they uh, laid out their 2023 forecast.
5: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex
6: Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg D.A.B. Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is off today. Christina Kino uh, joins me now from the U.K. So we've been joking about how we're all like nervous Nellies, super Debbie Downers here in the last couple segments. Here, here's something. I mean, the s and is up three tenths. I mean, I feel like maybe that counts for something. Um, yeah, green suits. I mean, literally it's green. So maybe that yeah. counts. Um This comes after, though, $1.6 trillion was wiped out of U.S. equities. Uh, We had also been steeply lower earlier today, making a new low for the year. So you could argue, okay, so we're bouncing. That's fine. But we did get the New York Fed releasing its September survey of consumer expectations, Christine, and one-year inflation expectations fell and three-year inflation expectations are around 3%. That peak was 4 and we're definitely below that now. Green shoots?
3: All right. There you go. She says, really <laughs> I'll skeptically. I'll take what I can get, Alex. I'll take what I can get at and, this point.
0: Yeah. And to be fair, when that broke, eventually over the last hour after that, we saw U.S. equities uh, climb to session highs. So take it for what that is. All right. Let's get some other negative headlines with Charlie Powell.
4: Uh, thank you very much. Nice setup. And here's what's going on. <laughs> the International Monetary Fund is suggesting that Britain has demonstrated the wrong way to handle the cost of living crisis, asserting that Liz Truss's program of tax giveaways and higher interest rates is adding to the risk of financial instability and complicating the fight against inflation. The institution's scathing rebuke for the UK Prime Minister came at the start of the IMF's annual meetings in Washington and before the appearance of Chancellor of the Exchequer Kwasi Kwarteng, who arrives later in the week. Group of seven leaders have vowed to support Ukraine, quote, for as long as it takes and condemned Russia's recent steps to escalate its war there in the strongest possible terms. During a 90-minute video call with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, G7 leaders pledged their undeterred and steadfast commitment to helping the government in Kyiv uphold its sovereignty and territorial integrity. London's local authority is currently not planning to host any so-called fan zones for the upcoming World Cup due to the mayor's opposition to Cutter's alleged human rights abuses. A spokesperson for the mayor of London says there are no current plans for the mayor or the greater London authority to host any fan zones or screenings of World Cup matches. The decision comes after cities across France, including Paris, Marseille and Bordeaux, have said they will not organize areas to watch the tournament, citing alleged abuse of migrant workers. Trafalgar Square, you'll recall, hosted about 7,000 fans to watch the England women's football team win the recent European tournament in July. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York.
0: Sports. Thanks very much.
4: There we go. Trafalgar (laughs) Square. We love it.
0: (laughs) I appreciate that, Charlie Pellet. All right. Let's get to the IMF uh, and their forecast. We've talked about the worst is yet to come. They cut their 2023 world GDP outlook. Um, They have a lower outlook for the euro area, UK, China, and Latin America. Uh, They see a global inflation outlook being raised for this year and for next. So, you know, you get the general vibe. So, Danny Berker was subbing for Guy on television, and she and I sat down with chief economist Pierre-Olivier Gournichage. Nope, I said that wrong. Gorin Shas. There we go. I knew I was going to get there. And we walked through some of their predictions. And Danny started with, if the worst is yet to come, what does the worst actually look like?
4: Well, we just released our uh, projections for this year and next this morning. And uh, what we are uh, seeing now in our baseline is that growth for 2022 will remain at about 3.2%. But global growth next year will slow down to 2.7%. That's a, a 0.2% percentage point cut from our July uh, forecast. So now 2.7% is 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 uh, a, a fairly low number if you want but to give a little bit of context here uh, what if you open the hood uh, what we see is that about a third of the global economy is going to be uh, experiencing a contraction this year or next. That means two quarters of negative growth, and so there's going to be quite a bit of slowdown in a number of countries mm. uh, already this year and and going into next year.
0: That was Pierre Olivier Gourchinas of the Chief Economist of the IMF. Mike McKee is down for the IMF meetings in D.C. and he joins us now. Hey, Mike, what are some of your takeaways from the report?
7: Um, put money in mattresses, dig holes in the backyard. <laughs>
0: Great! Everyone feels good.
7: Everybody feels good. Um, it's a little surprising to see the markets reacting uh, as they are right now, given uh, the doer outlook that we got from the IMF and that pretty much everybody on Wall Street's been giving us, uh, and then the Bank of England today. Uh, the, the takeaway is that things are, going, are bad and are going to get worse and that there is a danger they could get really bad. Um, He only puts it at 25% that we have a global recession, but that's still a a fairly high forecast. So, um, it's going to be interesting to see what comes out of this week. The IMF, the G20, they don't really take coordinated action, but if they talk in a coordinated way, that might uh, calm some in the markets.
3: So, Mike, you mentioned something funny there, uh, saying that it's a little funny to see markets uh, reacting negatively to this IMF statement. I would argue it's a little funny to see markets reacting to the IMF at all, because <laughs> in true. the last few years, it has notoriously really not uh, garnered any traction among investors. But it seems like it, there's something about this statement that kind of captures the mood of the moment. I, would you agree that there's something the current macro environment and the way that the IMF captured it really speaks to the zeitgeist? And, in the deepest seated fears among investors and economies at the moment.
7: That's exactly the way I would look at it. The IMF and World Bank don't have great forecasting records, especially for major economies. They're sometimes the only ones who look at frontier markets, so (laughs) they're the only forecasts you get. But uh, their view is dark enough that it matches the view of a lot of people on global Wall Street who are at this point seeing only downsides to things. Uh, there's also the fact that they're not just talking about the fact that we have a war and we have inflation, but they're talking about the danger of over-tightening by the world's central banks. And uh, the Fed being the lead central bank and the dollar being the lead problem for many other uh, emerging markets, uh, There, there is a resonance to what they're saying. Uh, and it's sort of amplified by the fact that all of these bankers and Economists and political leaders are gathering here in Washington.
0: And then, to that point, you know, the in, in the forward, they sort of laid out advice, I might say, what things need to do to avoid disaster. Um, governments need fiscal buffers. Fiscal cannot compete or hinder monetary policy. Energy shock isn't temporary. They warned of policies that can lead to excess demand and, therefore, inflation. And countries have to grow and expand productivity. Okay. What's the most realistic of all of that?
7: <laughs> um, It's kind of hard to say any of the fiscal stuff is completely realistic because different countries have different fiscal abilities, and the problem for many of them is with um – interest rates rising around the world, the debt that they would need to issue becomes somewhat unaffordable, and you end up having to look to the central bank to finance you. Um, That could become an issue in the Eurozone, particularly because they have a treaty that prohibits that. Uh, They can sort of look the other way, but will they? Um, The United States has had sort of that Situation going on with the Fed and uh, QE during a time when the government was selling lots of bonds to help uh, the people during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the U.S., we print our money, we can do that, but a lot of places might not be able to bring the fiscal help that they need. And when you're putting out fiscal assistance at a time when you're tightening monetary policy, you're working against each other. Yes. So that's a really difficult uh, thing.
0: Yeah, just just ask, you know, Christine and the U.K., as we highlighted earlier. Yeah. Hey, Mike, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Uh, looking forward to your coverage there, Mike McKee, uh, joining us from D.C. on the IMF. All right, coming up, we, we set the stage for you all. Now let's hear from got big guns who have a lot of money in the market, like Array Dalio, like Ares Capital. We're going to break down some of these big names for you and what they were saying at the Greenwich Economic Forum. This is Bloomberg.
5: This is the cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg
8: Radio.
0: Good evening. listening to the cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Christina Kino over in the UK. Uh, so today, well, all the big guns in the financial market converged on Greenwich in Connecticut, here in the U.S., um, and they at the Greenwich Economic Forum. And some talk to us, some talk to some panels, but we have lots of good uh, takes from many of them. Uh, Want to kick it off with Kip Devere? He's Aries Capital, a CEO, Um, and, you know, the credit market is a really interesting time. Jamie Dimon warned of the credit risk and the ETF risk as two potential huge risks in the market as we go through a recession and undergo this kind of volatility. So does that create opportunity or default worries when it comes to someone from Aries Capital? Um, Danny Berger and I sat down and we asked him about those cracks in the private credit market.
8: What I'd say as of now is not yet. Um, Jamie Dimon obviously has a pretty broad view of of the world, so uh, I'll take his six to nine months as uh, something to watch for, for sure. But when we look through to our portfolio companies today, uh, although we do expect um, likely defaults to go up this year with the increase in rates and, and, you know, a tougher debt service environment for those companies, I'd probably join him in predicting the next six to nine months could get more difficult, but today we're really not seeing it, Carolyn.
0: What will that default cycle look like, Kip? We certainly skipped it during the COVID era. How bad does it get when you're looking at
4: potential defaults next year?
8: Um, We don't really see anything extraordinary from a historical perspective. If you look today, you know, the default rate on corporate credit is broadly well below what you'd see in terms of historical averages or, you know, means. So I'd expect as we get through the back, you know, half of this fall and into next year, that we'll see a trend up more towards the historical average but I don't I don't see a you know terribly uncomfortable environment where it goes way through that
0: so uh, hi Kev it's Alex uh, in New York so that seems pretty constructive so then the obvious question is then where is the opportunity
8: yeah I mean the good news is is we as as you know private credit participants have more opportunity than we've had you know for sure over the last couple of years I think you know there's been plenty of press uh, covering some of the situations that the banks are trying to resolve and mm-hmm. some of the larger LBO lending that they've done. And as that resolves, it really creates a lot of fairway for folks that can still originate their own deals, which we do, and structure uh, and price our own deals in the private market. So we're seeing another acceleration and growth in our world. And, and the environment for investing is getting more and more attractive for us.
0: So. If the banks that were having trouble offloading that debt, and I'm just going to refer to, say, Citrix uh, and Brightspeed, why is that good then for you? Like, what are you seeing that they're not or that they're seeing that you're not?
8: Well, I mean, what I'd say is we tend to focus on smaller deals, right? So the banks, as many others have said in the past and I've said as well, really want to be in the moving business, right? So they want to underwrite larger deals that they can get rated by the rating agencies and sell to investors. We do something a little bit different in the middle market where we're actually out originating for our own investors and for our benefit with a very large team uh, in the US, Europe and Asia. So we're doing the same thing um, that that they're doing, frankly, in the middle market, but we're now able to charge higher fees. We're seeing wider spreads. And obviously, the base rate that underlies most of our loans is, is a floating rate base rate. So, that's up you know, a couple hundred basis points here in the last six months. So, all of that's just delivering better returns for our investors. All
0: right. That was uh, Kip deviera Aries, CEO, joining us there. Um, and we went on to ask him, Christine, and this is where it kind of dovetails with you, guess who's scooping up some assets from the UK pension fund selling?
3: Oh, tell me.
0: Aries, that was kind of mentioned. I mean, because we, well, Bloomberg had an article talking about how Apollo was doing that. Um, he wouldn't tell us exactly what he was buying, obviously, but basically, as the UK pension funds have to go into a fire sale mode and just sell some stuff, and that's not necessarily ending right now, even with BOE support. Like, you got the private credit guys in there snapping stuff up, and that the
3: UK is a tremendous
0: opportunity as long as things don't get too, too bad.
3: <laughs> that's a big ask, isn't it? Considering the current state of uh, policymaking over here in the UK, but I am at least glad that uh, Kip DeVere brought in some of the green shoots, some of the silver linings that we so desperately need for this episode of The Cable, right, Alex? Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, someone's making money off of someone else's pain. I guess we can say that. Um Let's hear from Ray Dalio next, shall we? Uh, He's stepping back from from Bridgewater, finally handing the reins over. He also spoke at the Greenwich uh, Economic Forum. He has a lot less to lose in that respect. He's not uh, running the Bridgewater world anymore. I mean, he is, but eventually he won't be. So it's interesting to get his take on the markets uh, and what's going on. So we'll hear from him next. You are listening to the Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg.
5: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening, listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Dila, New York. Christina Kino uh, joins us over in the U.K. So we talked about um, wh- the opportunistic opportunities uh, that we saw from Aries Capital. And now let's get the macro view. Um, at the Greenwich Economic Forum, Bridgewater CIO Ray Dalio uh, spoke with David Weston, and they started on the economic cycles and patterns that Ray Dalio has seen in, in the past and how all of that might apply today.
6: In my years of doing this, so something like a little over 50 years, what I found is that many times in my life, things that surprised me were because of, they never happened in my lifetime before, but they happened many times in history. So, for example, then studying these earlier times. If they happen mechanistically, I need to know how they work. So I studied the Great Depression. That's why we anticipated the 2008 financial crisis, because the same things happen over and over again, but sometimes not in our lifetimes. And so there were three big things. There are three big things that are happening uh, to us that haven't happened in our lifetime. I like to measure things so I can see them in numbers and charts and so on. And those three big things are, first, the amount of debt and money creation, how much debt we have, the rate at which we are creating it, and then where we're getting that money from, the Federal Reserve and other central banks printing it. So that has never happened to this degree except for the 1930 to 45 period, which I studied before. And I needed to go back and study that in history. The second of those two things is the amount of internal conflict, populism of the left and the right, irreconcilable differences, with the largest wealth gaps that have existed. So the greatest political gaps, the greatest amount of populism, largest wealth gaps um, since you have to go back to the 1930 to 45 period. And actually, it's larger than that. And you have to go back to 1900 to see that by the way if you want to see it you'll see the charts in that so um, we have a financial issue we have a internal conflict issue that has very big implications for how well our country is run but also what does it mean for taxes what does it mean for the value of assets I need to understand that and the third was um, international conflict Um, so in my whole lifetime the United States was clearly a dominant power, and we were in the American world order. 1945, the United States was the, became the leading world power, counted for half world GDP. We had 80% of the world's money, because gold was money then, and we had a military monopoly. And so the reason that um, we were the world's power, that's why the United Nations is in New York, and IMF, and World Bank of Washington, so dominant power. but. Uh, we could see this conflict this emerging competition and I didn't the last time that happened was the 1930 to 45 period and I need to study that and so I studied that Pattern and these are the big things in our lives right now But we don't, are not acquainted with it and I so I needed to study the rise and declines of currencies uh, the rise and declines of empires and because these cycles go on Um, over a long period of time. I needed to see enough of those cases, so I had to go uh, go back, let's say, the 500 years. So I studied all of those. Now, I'm not an an academic. I'm a practitioner. So it's not like I'm writing history books. It's for the purpose of making decisions today. So what I learned there has been important in our positioning in the markets right now. So it's just that practical. But those are the three big things. I also studied, saw in history that there were two other things that were very important. Um, One was um, acts of nature actually toppled more civilizations, killed more people than the others that I just mentioned. Uh, And they are um, uh, droughts, floods, and pandemics, but like a pandemic, that's another one that comes along once in a lifetime and we don't see it. And then, of course, the most important force over a long period of time is man's adaptability and inventiveness and now we have a greater ability so and that's the plus you know the others are challenging so that's it in a nutshell
0: In a nutshell. That felt like a long nutshell, though. That was Ray Dalio of Bridgewater. right? Uh, Joining David Weston um, uh, at the Greenwich Economic Forum. What did he say last week? Cash isn't trash? Or cash is trash? Which was the one? He no longer thinks that cash is trash. He no longer thinks that cash is trash. Okay, him and everybody else, I feel.
3: Yeah, well, it seems like he's going to be one of those uh, mattress stuffers if he already (laughs) hasn't started doing that, uh, that Mike McKee was describing. Uh, But very interesting, though. I mean, so this is his view, right? Coming into the Greenwich Economic Forum, and now he's talking about how it's all kind of cyclical. History tends to repeat itself, and that's why it's important to study the patterns of the past to try and predict the future. So what do you think he saw in all that studying that (laughs) led him to believe that cash is no longer trash, Alex?
0: I don't know. Treasury yields finally at four percent. I, I mean, a, a reversal of the last twelve years of quantitative easing. Uh, I don't know. Hard to say. What do you think?
3: Uh, I, I I guess it's uh, perhaps a uh, yeah the the shift in monetary policy that uh, he, we haven't necessarily seen in in our lifetimes, which he did allude to the importance of kind of studying beyond what you've seen in your own lifetime to previous lifetimes. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of studying, Alex. I don't know if I have a lot of time for that. No, no, no No one has time for that. Let's be perfectly <laughs> honest.
0: Uh, but, but the idea, but you do point to the fact that, and we were talking about this on television before, that um, people who are trading the market now have never seen a period of real volatility and real inflation. And we've talked about that a lot. And then how that... It takes a longer time to kind of shift that mindset of the central bank put, etc. And I wonder if we're seeing that re- reshake, reshift a little bit.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. I, I hear the '90s babies were bullying you on the show. They earlier were. Did hours. you see that? I, I I saw it. I heard it, and I am coming to your defense. So, but yeah, you're absolutely right. There is a whole generation of market participants now that really have not seen anything like this before.
0: See, this and is what happens when they're... Guy's gone, because then we get to make fun of Guy being old. He's actually not that old, and he's not that much older than me. But we get to pretend that he is. But then we wind up having all the 90 babies, and I'm like, wow, I'm kind of their grandma. And that I'm is- coming
3: to your rescue. Thank you. I'm over
0: here. I'm really glad that you saw in that moment. And- hey, Christine, <laughs> always a pleasure. Um, I hope we're ending on a good note here. I- There's a lot of negative news to take in. Um, S&P, though, up by five-tenths of one percent. We get PPI tomorrow. CPI comes uh, on Thursday. We'll be here for all of that. You've been listening to The Cable. Have a great night. This is Bloomberg.